The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 9. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. We begin yet another new scene this week. We are already at Scene 5 of Act 1, and we have moved to Macbeth's castle, where much of the remaining action of the play will take place. We now meet the Lady of the House, Macbeth's wife. There are very few reliable historical details about the real Macbeth's wife, although we do have a name for her, Gruach. In the play, she is never referred to by this name or any other, only by her title. It's worth noting, too, that she's never even called Lady Macbeth in the play. This is a theatrical tradition that has rightly developed since we don't have much else to call her. Despite all of this, she is one of Shakespeare's most famous characters, and certainly one of the most compelling and intriguing. She enters reading a letter from her husband. While we've no indication of how it started, I think it's safe to assume that she's about halfway through it by the time she comes on stage. She reads, They met me in the day of success. And I have learned, by the perfectest report, they have more in them than mortal knowledge. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves air, into which they vanished. Whilst I stood wrapped in the wonder of it, came missives from the king, who all hailed me Thane of Cawdor, by which title before these weird sisters saluted me, and referred me to the coming on of time, with hail king that shalt be. This have I thought good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatness, that thou mightst not lose the dues of rejoicing by being ignorant of what greatness is promised thee. Lay it to thy heart, and farewell. This is all great news from her husband. Presumably he has mentioned meeting the witches in the portion she read off stage. Since we met them too, there isn't much reason to recap the entire scene, but it is good to hear how Macbeth describes them. He met them on the day of his big military success, and he says he learned by the perfectest report that they have more in them than mortal knowledge. Macbeth called them imperfect speakers when he was begging to hear more, but what they said to him does appear to be coming true. So their report looks pretty good so far. If it's on its way to perfect, well and good. But indeed, when he burned in desire to ask more, to get more answers, they made themselves air. As he described them, they vanished like bubbles. And as he stood wrapped in the wonder of it, the king's messengers arrived with the news that he was now Thane of Cawdor. We mentioned the significance of the all hail in previous episodes, but it's clever of Shakespeare to turn it into a verb here. Macbeth calls the witches the weird sisters here, and this is as close to a description as anyone speaks aloud in the play, and we'll hear this phrase, weird sisters, a good few more times. They refer Macbeth to the coming on of time, this is such a brilliant phrase for the future, and say, all hail Macbeth, king that shalt be. It's interesting that Macbeth doesn't comment here. There's no hint of his horrible imaginings, of his outrageous notions of killing the king and bypassing Malcolm, the Prince of Cumberland. He hinted to us about them when he was on stage, but rule number one, of course, is never put it in writing. 
But still, he does seem to be happy enough to leave things to fate. He's writing, he says, because he feels it's good to share the news with her, his dearest partner of greatness. And this idea of a partnership between them is clearly established here because things are going to change as we move on. He wouldn't want his partner to lose the dues of rejoicing, her chance to be happy and celebrate by not knowing what great things are coming her way. So, basically, he's writing to tell her that by the looks of things, she might be queen soon enough. If chance will crown him king, it'll make her queen too. So, he tells her this good news and tells her to lay it to her heart and farewell. It's Lady Macbeth's answer to all of this, as soon as she finishes the letter, that introduces her own ambition. The letter was in prose, but now she switches into verse. Glams thou art, and Cawdor, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet I do fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou'dst have great glams, that which cries, Thus thou must do, if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do, than wishest should be undone. Hie thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. She comes in hot. The first thing she says is that her husband will indeed be king. He's already glams and cordor, and he absolutely will be getting what those women promised. What's very interesting here is that she addresses the whole speech to him. Macbeth isn't on stage, but she talks as if he is. It's a direct response to his letter, and if she will be queen, he will be king. Yet, she says, she worries about his nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness. Macbeth is too good. It's a strange image for a man to be filled with milk, which is more associated with mothers and breastfeeding and women. A man too full of milk sounds weak or spoiled, too attached to his mother perhaps, or even effeminate, lacking a more masculine drive. This is quite surprising given the intensely martial descriptions of the warrior Macbeth we've already heard. Human or humane kindness, goodness to kin, are all woven into this image of Macbeth's apparent weakness. They will all prove essential to what's to come. She suggests that Macbeth is too weak, too good, to catch the nearest way, by which she means to get the crown the easiest way possible. There's a bit of an echo here of Francis Bacon's 1605 book, The Advancement of Learning, in this, he says that it is in life as it is in ways. The shortest way is commonly the foulest, and surely the fairer way is not much about. Here we have echoes not just of the nearest or shortest way, but of things foul and fair, already so prevalent in the play. Bacon's point is that shortcuts often lead to dirty work, and likewise Macbeth is too good to skip his place in the queue and catch the nearest way. Lady Macbeth expands on his apparent weakness in detail. 
Thou wouldst be great, she says, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. Macbeth has his ambitions and would be great, she says, but he doesn't have the illness or wickedness that he will need to realise his ambition. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Even if Macbeth really wants something, something as high or as precious as the crown, he would have it only by good or holy blameless means. And there's a nice balance here between the sound of highly and holily, as if she's being sarcastic about his apparent foibles. Wouldst not play false, she says, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Macbeth wouldn't mind getting the result, but he doesn't want to do what it will take to make it happen. She continues, thou'dst have great glams, that which cries thus thou must do if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do than wishest should be undone. He'd be happy to have the crown, which itself cries, this is what you must do in order to have it. But he's happier in his comfort zone, scared to take this action, rather than do it and get the crown, and wish it were undone. All this is to say that she fears that Macbeth's ambition will not get him far enough because he's still scared to kill the king. She doesn't appear to have this problem at all. She urges him to hurry home. Hie thee hither, she says, so that she can pour her spirits in his ear. Now, this isn't a literal act. Do remember that in Hamlet the fatal poison was poured into the king's ear while he slept. But instead she's hoping to encourage her husband, to embolden him with what she'll say, and chastise with the valour of her tongue all that impedes him from the golden round. This is powerful stuff. We must bear in mind that the main weapon a woman was considered to possess was her tongue, and so Lady Macbeth plans to use this. But just as her husband may be full of milk, her tongue is full of valour, that most manly of attributes. She will use this valour to chastise or purify or burn away everything that is holding him back from the crown the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have him crowned withal. So she's using such masculine elements of herself to chase away any effeminate elements in her husband. She's excited. According to the letter, the witch's predictions do seem to be coming true. She's just going to make sure that he's ready and that no little foibles of conscience or kindness will get in Macbeth's way. Evidently, this lady is even more ambitious than her husband. At this point, it's no harm to quote the very brief mention that she gets in Hollinshed's Chronicles. It's in volume five, all about Scotland, where he writes, The words of the three weird sisters also, of whom, before ye have heard, greatly encouraged him hereunto, but specially his wife lay sore upon him to attempt the thing, as she was very ambitious burning with an unquenchable desire to bear the name of a queen. This unquenchable desire, as he put it, is just beginning to show itself. At this point in the scene a servant appears, but we'll save the great news that is brought for our next episode. For now, as ever, thank you for your company. I'll put up some information about Hollandshed and Francis Bacon on the website. You can find these notes and those that accompany every episode at thehamletpodcast.com. Do be sure to check it out, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>